1: Every child who has ever played baseball has dreamt of being in the World Series. Today's guest, Ron Darling, had that dream too, and he got to live it. But as many of us have learned, dreams don't always turn out as imagined. Ron is the author of the book, Game 7, 1986, Failure and Triumph in the Biggest Game of My Life. He's here to talk about what he experienced that night in Shea Stadium and the lessons he's learned by reflecting on that time when the world was watching. He was a starting pitcher for the New York Mets from 1983 to 1991, and the first Mets pitcher to be awarded a gold glove. Welcome, Ron. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So, Ron, this is really an honor for me to have you here. I grew up in New Jersey, and I spent a lot of time at Mets games. Reading your book, it brought back so many great memories because I remember game six of 86 when we were at a comedy club in New Jersey and they kept interrupting the comedian set to bring us updates because, you know, we didn't have cell phones. And I had forgotten about that until I read this book. So while your book focuses on an event that took place in the game of baseball, there are so many life lessons that can be applied to just about anything a person is experiencing. So. For our listeners who may not be big baseball fans or may even be too young to remember what happened 30 years ago, let's set the stage. You're a starting pitcher for the New York Mets and you're in the World Series playing the Boston Red Sox. In Game 6, when it looked like the Mets were going to lose and it was going to be over, they had this amazing comeback, which would bring a Game 7. And you're scheduled to start in that game. So take it from there. What were you thinking going into Game 7?
0: Well, what was interesting, and as you said, I, I feel bad for the comic now who interrupted <laughs> in the set. But uh, um, uh, you know, most people believe the World Series ended after Game Six, after the ball went through Buckner's legs. Mm-hmm. But there was another night to play, and uh, the interesting part about it is that the initial game, which was supposed to be the next night on Sunday, was rained out, and so there were two days, or so forty-eight hours, between that time and the time I had the pitch. What was interesting about when they won the World Series, there was no one uh, happier running on that field and jumping on top of each other. Uh, The parade the next day, no one had more fun than I did during that day. But two days later, because of my start in Game 7, which wasn't great, I kind of hit a wall in my apartment. And I think that for a lot of athletes or a lot of people they love when they envision themselves in the most opportune time. And for a pitcher, it's pitching game seven. And uh, I, I didn't come through. And it was really, honestly, the first time in my entire life as, as an athlete that I didn't come through. And I, I was trying to figure out why was that? How did that happen? Why, why didn't I come through? And I, I think there were two things that I got from writing the book, and it was a very cathartic experience was one, a little bit of, uh, and this was on me, uh, a paralysis by analysis. Sometimes we can make things that are very simple and much more complicated than they are, and I certainly did that. Mm-hmm. And then the Boston Red Sox, who were a good ball club, decided that uh, uh, this young right-hander who's going to start three times in 11 days against them was not going to have a successful game seven.
1: Well, and you know, and as you said, you've had 30 years to reflect on that evening and you have gained valuable insight. And one of the things that you write about in the book is fear and and it's this fear that you didn't belong there. And this is something that so many of us experience, this fear that we're going to be, you know, quote unquote, found out. And for someone like me, who's looking at you and, and all that you had achieved at that point, it's really difficult to imagine that you had those thoughts. So if you could go back with what you know now, and and this is a lesson for someone who's thinking like that in whatever it may be, what would you tell yourself to overcome those fears?
0: Yeah, I I think that self-worth is the most important gift that we all have, you know? And I think that, you know, we go through different times in our life where we feel we have more self-worth or less. I would have told myself that, boy, you know what? You are amazing. You've done a lot in a, a short amount of time. And, uh, and, and really, uh, instead of getting worked up about this start that you're going to make, why don't you just enjoy the process and being the present? I think that's what I would have told myself. In the book, I write a story about a friend of mine whose mom was a teacher and whose dad was a post office worker. And he had a big interview with, uh, with a kind of a hedge fund of the day, kind of big star and after they were done the interview, he thought he got the job. He thought the interview went great. And a couple of weeks later, he found out he didn't get it, called this uh, a maverick of a man and just asked, you know, is there anything I could have done better in the interview? I thought I did pretty well. He goes, no, your interview uh, was great. you just, uh, you know, you're the, uh, um, the kid of, uh, of blue-collar people. This is uh, white-collar dreams, not blue-collar dreams. And I always thought that, well, what a, one, a mean thing to say. Um, but secondly, I think that's what happens when you grow up uh, in the kind of environment I grew up in, which was uh, very, uh, you know, lower middle class. And and uh, sometimes when you get to huge events, sometimes you uh, think about, boy, do I belong here? How the heck did I get here? Uh, I would have told myself uh, that, boy, you've accomplished a lot and you should really enjoy this experience because you deserve it.
1: And, you know, I, I wanted to talk about that blue-collar dream concept because I found that fascinating. And, you know, you wrote that you were good enough to dream, you were good enough to be recruited, you were good enough to play pro ball to get into the series, but that's where it ended. And what do you think it, it actually is that happens? And and when I was thinking about this and I was trying to understand it, I thought about my boys you know, we're, we're basically middle-class and, and I put them in a preparatory Catholic high school and the kids that they went to school with were, you know, they were in line to be CEOs and judges and, and so forth. And for my kids to achieve that, there would be a story attached to it where with these other kids, it's just expected of them. And they know that. And do you think that that's what it is? Am I clear on that?
0: I think you're very clear. I think uh, for some, it's a rite of passage. For others, it's it's so daunting. I mean, from my childhood, but neither of my parents graduated from high school. So when I got into Yale, and I'm, I'm the same, I went to uh, all boys college preparatory school. Um, I was expected to excel in schools. I, I was expected to, to be the first one in my family to go to college. and And when I got there, I just kind of realized how Different I was than for a lot of kids who who uh, going to Yale was uh, a rite of passage. It was uh, a, a normal turn of events for me. It was like winning the lottery. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Uh, so it, it was a, it was a different existence for me. Not that uh, I didn't enjoy it as much as they did, but uh, I, I did feel that responsibility and onus. Uh, to live up uh, to all those things that my parents wanted to happen for me, and uh, and that's a little different than than, than some of my uh, classmates who were uh, had had a BMW on campus uh, exactly. while I uh, <laughs> while I walked everywhere. It is a different existence, and and your boys uh, are going to um, be rewarded and and enjoy it down the road, um, maybe even more than some that it uh, comes a little more easier to.
1: Ron, you talk about overcoming obstacles. I mean, in high school, a recruiter told you that you didn't have what it what it would take to play in the majors, and then on top of that, you switched to being a pitcher in college. I mean, is that even possible today? That someone could take up pitching in college and then make it to the pros?
0: No, I think because uh, you know we are trying to, and I tried not to do this for my children. My children are grown, but uh, you know we live in a world where. You know, by the time you're seven or eight years old, you should, should be uh, specialized in mm-hmm. what you're going to do and who you're going to be, become. And boy, that is just uh, um, what a daunting and awful thing I think to do to our kids. I think I think we we definitely want to kind of push them to where they want to go. But the, you know, the bottom line is is I want want them to be kids too and to enjoy that. And uh, you know, we live in a world. Where you know our kids are at school all day, and then they have two, three hours of homework to do, and and uh, when's the time that they can be kids? Uh, I I think uh, you know we we've got to as parents, and we've got to as educators, and um, you know make our priorities a little different. They do it in the in European countries, and they do a great job of it, and hopefully we get better at it here.
1: Ron, from everything you've experienced, what advice do you offer to kids who want to pursue a dream, whether it be to play major league ball or anything else?
0: Yeah, um, you know, I'm asked all the time, you know, what, what can parents do to make themselves um, a professional athlete? And uh, I, I, I want to kind of chuckle when I hear that because you don't really mm-hmm. find major league sports. They kind of find you. And I think it's, uh, it's the same with, with other kind of, uh, um, you know, those jobs that you aspire to. I think you can only make yourself as good as you can make yourself, as smart as you can make yourself, um, have great self-worth. And if you're that kind of personality, then that job that you love is going to find you. You're going to find it. Uh, but taking care of oneself, whether it's uh, education, whether it's self-worth, how good you feel, uh, all of those things, I think, are, are going to push you to what you're passionate about. And I, and I think that, you know, the older I get, uh, the things that I'm really passionate about are the things that I'm really good at. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you're really passionate about it and you become very good at it, somehow you'll be able to make a living at it. And uh, that would be my best piece of advice.
1: Ron, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What do you want to leave our listeners with?
0: What I want to leave are... are your listeners with is that, you know, it's, it's all right, you know, to live your dream. It's all right to have that moment and it's all right if the moment doesn't come out perfectly. I think we have, uh, all of our lives are, are a series of, uh, of things that don't go perfectly, but we work around it and get to the place that we want to be. Um, I, I, I just think that we put so much pressure on ourselves uh, to live a perfect life uh, when there is no perfect life. There's just a life. And uh, to enjoy it and being present uh, while you're doing it is the only way to really thrive.
1: Whether you're a baseball fan or just want to learn a lesson or two about life, check out a copy of Game 7, 1986 by Ron Darling. Ron, thank you so much for being here. I, I have to tell you, this is the second time my sons have paid attention. The first time was Jim Abbott, <laughs> and now you. <laughs> So thank well, you.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, thank you uh, so much for having me. Your show is, is fantastic. It's uplifting, and it's uh, exactly what uh, uh, what uh, we all need right now.
1: This is Conversations with Joan. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.